we love to turn people on to books that connect them because sometimes the grind of the job gets you so pinned down that you don't ever get this chance to pull back and look at a bigger picture. And books can help you do that. Welcome to the first installment of We're Book. This is going to be a recurring themed episode of Maitre D Diaries. And we're your hosts, Dante Kamara and Erica Catley. We're on location today at the Venerable Kitchen Arts and Letters on Lexington Avenue on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And we're here with our guest, managing partner, Matt Sartwell. Welcome, Matt, and thank you for taking the time today. Sure, thank you for having me. This is a real pleasure. Just before we hit record, we found out a funny connection between you guys. Yes, it was just really amazing. I was talking to Erica earlier today about Hawaii and the bookstore, and I had mentioned to Erica that I have a very dear friend, Robin Maie, who has a restaurant in Honolulu called Fet, and their second floor dining room, which is actually a private dining room slash entertainment space and they also use it for overflow is actually toted as the library so i think this is really amazing matt so please share with our audience the connection and robin well many years ago in the early aughts robin worked here at kitchen arts and letters although she's become very successful as a chef her path to it was not completely linear she did a number of things along the way from having gone to culinary school. She worked here for us. She went to graduate school at NYU. She worked at Gourmet Magazine. She taught at several culinary schools here in New York, all before going to FET. But we were really so lucky to have her as an employee for several years. And now it's amazing to us to have a former staffer who's a James Beard Award winner. Yeah, Matt, I think it's just really phenomenal. And it's just what, again, what a small world. I'm so excited because I'm going to be back in Honolulu in September. I'm going to have to pop in on her. You know, I was trying to go back to what was my first literary cookbook or something of that sort, because I went to culinary school at Johnson and Wales University in Providence, Rhode Island. And I had mentioned to Erica, my last trip back to Hawaii, I brought a copy of Dory Greenspan's cookbook on chocolate. And it had been signed by Dory Greenspan years ago when I was the maitre d' at Cafe Bulu. So I bequeathed the book to Robin so she could install it in the library. So I'm excited. So then it's a little bit of an extension of me, my relationship with Dory Greenspan, because of course they have a very good relationship and then now here, the book is housed there in their library. So it's really thrilling for me. Yeah, Robin and her husband, Chuck Bustler, have spent decades now building that library out. And it is incredibly impressive. Yeah. I remember it, what it was like when they were living here. And they've, in the intervening years, I know they've added to it significantly. So someday I will be in Honolulu and I will be sure to see it. Excellent. Excellent. That's so cool. I am having some sympathy pangs for her working here and being tempted to spend all her salary on books. <laughs> it's not easy. No. There is a uh, there is a good employee discount, but yes, there is also much temptation. There, of uh, course. Well, speaking of temptation, I'll just say I came up, I wanted to get here earlier than I did, but it was probably just as well because I have not been in this store, I think since before the pandemic. And this is a very special place for me personally, emotionally, 
because I used to come up to Kitchen Arts or come down to Kitchen Arts and Letters from Boston, a bunch of us, Dante included, and some of our friends who were line cooks and sous chefs at the time, we all had our eyes on New York. We were loving what we were doing in Boston, but we definitely wanted to come to New York where everything was really happening. And when I would visit, I would always make a pilgrimage here to Kitchen Arts and Letters. And of course, back then, if you wanted to learn something, you got a book, right? Still works that way. It, yeah. it could still work that way. But definitely then, and I mean, I remember one, one of the best assets I had coming up in the business was having cooks who were my friends who would tell me, oh, Jean George's book just came out or this book or Get White Heat. And so I would come here and I felt very small and just very ignorant, but I would always be embraced by Nockwaxman, who I just realized it's been almost exactly two years that he left us way too soon. I can't believe that. Um, grateful for the incidental timing just to really honor him and his work, what he created here, his curation and kind of his by hand sales that he would do to every person that would come in here really has made this place a true gastronomic library and research center. And I think that anybody who cares about books and who cares about knowledge is acutely aware of, you know, the changing tides and the difficulties of the publishing business. But I, for one, am so grateful that you guys are still here. Well, thank you. We've adapted. We've changed over the years. But we've always tried to stay true to the spirit that Knock brought to it was that we have lots of books here that we maybe sell one copy of every year. And that doesn't make us rich, but it means that the person who finds that book is satisfied. And we want to be able to have the depth that allows us to keep doing that. So sometimes people come in and their questions are, you know, sort of, they're obvious and they're mainstream and it's easy to find the right book for them. And sometimes we have to spend time with them asking questions, learning about what they already know, learning about where they want to go. But that's one of the pleasures of being face-to-face with people. I mean, we have a website. We sell lots of books through our website, either by email or by phone or in person. We spend a lot of time answering people's questions about what is the right book for them. Yeah, and I think exactly what you described is very much what I experienced in the early 90s and then throughout the 2000s, where, I mean, how in the heck would I have been directed to the murder mysteries of Michael Bond, Monsieur Pomplemousse, if... Knock hadn't asked me, what do you like? And I said, murder mysteries. Yeah. (laughs) No, it's sometimes people come in and they have a really clear idea of what they want. And sometimes they don't know exactly what they want, but they have this itch that they're trying to scratch. And in a conversation, we can often find out how to get closer to scratching that itch for them. I mean, sometimes the book they want hasn't been written yet. Mm. Um, There's still lots of room for amazing books to be written. But at the same time, every one of us here comes to the process of being a bookseller by having a long time interest in food, whether we work in restaurants or in food in some other way, we're here to engage and to have a back and forth because there isn't always just one pat answer to a question. Yeah, fantastic. Well, Matt, you know, us being, we're maitre d's, right? Gatekeepers of a restaurant. But from what I'm just listening to your dialogue, to come in and be, you know, it's the service industry, it's hospitality, to have 
an extension of that and express yourself in a different way in the literary sense, hard copy and print. I think it's really amazing. You know, I was telling Erica earlier, I think when I went to culinary school, when I got my first La Russe Gastronomique, how important and special that book was to me, something that I, I needed as I was going through the whole learning how to cook and the nuances of everything. So I think it's so important to have a key gatekeeper more so than ever with, you know, print and tactical material, just really under scrutiny. There's so much, there's eBooks and downloadable information, but there's nothing more special and better than something that's either out of print or something that you can hold on to and put on your shelf for years to come. Yeah. I mean, I think there has been a profound increase in the amount of informational material out there in the formats that it comes in. But books remain important to people. The sheer tangibility of them is simply a different experience. You know, I read on my phone, but I find that if I'm reading out of a book, my attention stays there longer. Mm -hmm. I'm less easily distracted from it. Sometimes you end up with a book that belonged to someone else, which yep. you can't do with an ebook. Maybe somebody sent you a link to something, but it's not the same as having a copy. Not the same. Yeah, I agree. It came from somebody who helped train you or who encouraged you or simply somebody who knew that the book would be a great thing for you and they got it for you. So there are legacies involved in books that I think have a lasting value that goes beyond simply the content of the book. Yes, I agree. And that whole thing, when you're saying legacy and also giving books to people, that opens up a couple ideas for me. One is that I have given away so many copies of A.J. Liebling's Between Meals. I would buy it, I would read it, and then I'd give it to somebody. And then I'd be like, well, I have to get another copy and then give that one away. And at a certain point, I would maybe buy a couple, so I'd be ready. And the, the same thing happened for me with a book that I'm in love with that we were talking about earlier. It's a more of a compilation. It's Ludwig Bebelman's La Bonne Table. And we'll talk a little bit more about the specific titles, but just saying that it's such a good feeling to hand over to somebody a book that they might not open for years legitimately. And I do think this is why it's important to sign the books that you give as gifts, because otherwise they might not know who gave it to them. But also I brought a stack. I want to say I'm a little verklempt right now because I'm having quite a once in a lifetime pinch me moment back here in the shipping room at Kitchen Arts and Letters. I'm surrounded by all these books in this place that means so much to me. And I did bring a stack of my own books, mostly talking about, you know, older out of print or just not known books today. Although we are going to touch upon some other good recommendations for people written by people who are still very much alive. But one thing that I brought with me were these two books that were passed on to me by the man who owned Le Vaudor. And I wouldn't know that they had been passed on. I wouldn't have remembered necessarily. I remember the day at the restaurant and the gentlemen who were there, but I wasn't sure who gave it to me until I found in the book some envelopes that said Le Vaudor on them. And so just that trace, that legacy of that lunch with these very generous French men who are saying, you want to know about the restaurant industry before you were born in New York City? Here's dining at the Pavillon. Here's, you know, the invention of the restaurant from Paris, if you love Paris, you know? Yeah, when we find older books that have things like that in them, whether it's a business card or a menu card from a restaurant, we always leave that in there. 
because it's part of passing that connection along to the next owner is to give them a sense of who had this before and what is the story. And you may not know, you may not be able to discern all the details from it, but you do get a sense of a broader connection. And I think a lot of very moving books like Lieblings Between Meals, I mean, he's talking about a world that has almost completely vanished. Mm -hmm. I mean, even when he was writing about it, he was writing about it very nostalgically. And some of that is 100 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. But it connects us to that sense that the things that we're interested in, the things that they do, they are perpetual, ongoing, eternal human preoccupation. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things, too, that we're interested in at Major D Diaries is we are very much kind of bridging the gap between the OG and the next gen, if you will, and want to really honor and spotlight not only what's going on right now, but, you know, our foundations. I think that Dante and I are fortunate enough to have been around long enough that we got to see a lot. But we also got to hear about a lot that we just missed. And we cared about that and we learned about it, you know. And so I think that at a time where the world of food and restaurants and hospitality is expanding so much in a wonderful way and getting, you know, there's so much more available to everyone. All the diversity of cuisines and coming from different countries and different regions in different countries is so great. And but to know the backstory, everybody has a backstory. A lot of it, yes, is French for fine dining, but those stories are there. And I think it's a shame if people's education does not include that, even if they start now. But it is also, I think, one of the magic things that happens with books is that you can pick up and start to engage with that kind of thing at any point in your life, in your career, because nobody can know everything. Nobody can be aware of all that came before. So at a certain point, you say, gosh, I'm curious. What was what was it like in, in Paris in the 1950s? What was it like in Paris in the 1930s? And if you read George Orwell, you know that it was pretty freaking miserable. Uh, <laughs> wrote in Down and Out in Paris and London about how hard life was as a cook in Paris. But I mean, there is so much that's come before and we can't know it all but we can stay curious and i think that's the answer for most people is just to keep keep investigating keep sort of going down a particular rabbit hole and maybe you know a lot about some narrow path but specialization is great yeah matt do you still get young people in the industry coming up here and digging around or who are you getting up here these days oh absolutely we see people from all levels of experience and all walks of life. A great deal of our business is industry professionals. And a lot of the special effort we put into obtaining unusual books is done with that audience in mind. So we're importing from all over the world, mostly looking for things that are going to be helpful to people who are in the industry in one way or another. Yeah, we see young people. There are chefs who are always sending people up here and restaurants that are building internal libraries for their staff. And people who just, you know, they work with a colleague who keeps like dropping all these reference bombs mm. to famous people. And they like yes. come in and they're like, I don't know who he's talking about. Help me, help me. And we love to turn people on to books that connect them because sometimes the grind of the job, whether you're working on the line, you're working in front of the house, or sometimes everyday life just gets you so pinned down that you don't 
ever get this chance to pull back and look mm -hmm. at a bigger picture. And books can help you do that. And we want to help them get perspective. Mm, fantastic. I love that. You mentioned the building the libraries. Something that's very much in the conversation right now is the library in the bear. Did you have anything <laughs> to do with that? We did not. We did not. We would have loved the chance to do that. I actually <laughs> think that they consulted with the people at Now Serving LA, which is a store much like ours in Los Angeles. It's a great uh -huh. store. They, I think they're well plugged into the entertainment industry there. And I think they consulted on that library. I have to say, I haven't seen the bear. So one of those points where I'm not caught up, but I hear a lot from people that the library on hand of the show is pretty sharp. So it sounds like they did a great job. Yep. Yep. I think they did. And then people were taking a lot of screenshots of it and trying to quickly catch what titles were there. And again, to be tipped off, uh, what would we like to know? I think one of the things I've been counseled on is that maybe a younger generation, and again, whether they're chronologically younger or they're just younger in the industry, don't necessarily want to be told what they need to know, but you can tell them some interesting stories and then they might like to get a little more curious. I think that, yeah, what you do is ideally is you just sort of whet someone's appetite and then let them choose. Mm -hmm. And there are all kinds of ways to do that. Some people want really serious, hardcore history. Some people want memoirs, some culinary memoirs. Maybe they're a little colorfully embroidered. You can't take them as the last word on something. There are some chefs who are great storytellers. There are some people who are maybe better storytellers than they are accurate reporters. Uh, so it's always up to you as a reader to be sort of thoughtfully engaged with what you're reading and sort of sifting out and saying, well, you know, maybe that's not the last word on the subject. But we keep roughly 12,000 different titles on hand here. So almost always if somebody comes in and starts asking questions, we can try to help them find something that's going to put a fancy. Fantastic. Dante, did you have some other book that you wanted to talk about? Well, some uh, about most recently, we're talking about giving and receiving of books. Erica, I thank you for this. You know, that Your Table is Ready by Michael Chechi. I recently am a recipient of that Erica gave me, which I most appreciated. And of course, and then having the pleasure to go to his restaurant opening week and to have him sign the book. So again, it's those connections, not only just personally or professionally between Eric and I or between friends, but then to actually, in my case, I brought the book with me and there was all of this excitement like, oh, I need to get the book and how far along are you in it? You know, so you almost feel like a little bit of a celebrity yourself. And you don't see that even now, you know, my commute is a lot shorter than it used to be. So I don't necessarily have enough time to pull out the New Yorker or to pull out a book to read because I'm literally two stops from the restaurant. So often I walk, but there is something very special to having something tactical or just be able to have, like in my case, working for Daniel Boulou and having his Cafe Boulou book and then having him sign it. And you stop for a moment because there's an intimate exchange going on, not only because you're reading about said person standing in front of you, but then they have something nice to say about you and the reason that maybe you have this relationship with said person. So I think books are truly unique. They're the greeting card of what's special to people. And so I thank you again, Erica, for this most latest induction to my library. <laughs> of course, of course. 
Before we have a bunch of books that we want to share with you, but could we backtrack just for a minute, Matt? And how did you get here? What's in your background that led you here in 1991? I understand. I came here in 1991. The store had actually opened up in 1983. So 40 years this year for the store. Congrats. Thank you. We're really excited about that. I had been working as an editor at Penguin. I got tired of sitting in marketing meetings and arguing about budgets, which seemed to be about all I did at that point. So I left. I was going to be a freelance editor, but a friend of mine worked for Knock Waxman's wife and knew that there was an opening for a part-time clerk here at Kitchen Arts and Letters. So I thought, well, that'll get me out of the house and make sure I'm not spending the whole day scribbling on manuscripts. So I started working here part-time. I had worked in restaurants in high school and college, not fine dining by any stretch (laughs) of the imagination. But I had always been sort of the guy in the office who would, if there was a going away party, I would cater the food. I mean, I, you know, I had kept that going, but I hadn't done any food books as an editor. That was always a sort of a separate realm away from the stress of work. But here, I didn't find that there was stress and it was an easy a uh, very pleasurable place to spend time. And I kept working more and more days a week. And eventually I became the store manager and then a co-owner back in about 10 years ago. Nice. I guess it was. So yeah, planning on sticking around as long as I can. Amazing. Are you from New York or where are you from originally? I grew up in Oregon, actually, oh, wow. uh, in a town called Corvallis. But I came to New York very fresh out of college and I've been here ever since. Great. All right, let's get to some of the books that we want to share today. I mentioned some of mine and again, they're not all easily available. AJ Liebling is an amazing writer. He wrote for the New Yorker and he also put together a bunch of books and this Between Meals is still in print. It is, absolutely. Liebling was actually most famous as a sports writer. He loved to write about toxic, but food was his other passion. And this is a really nostalgic evocation of eating in Paris between the two world wars. Mm. So that's an amazing book. And he has all sorts of stuff, but that one I particularly love because I think he was around during the time of Hemingway or just a little after or some overlap, but he was not in their world. No, it was not a really august world. He was a young guy. He was learning to eat. He was learning to fall in love. And he wasn't traveling in refined circles. And he was eating in neighborhood restaurants. And sometimes he's writing later and recalling that. But it's just about learning to appreciate good food from a young guy who hadn't really come out of a family that did that. Yeah. Okay, so that's a great transition to Ludwig Bemelmans who the book I'm speaking about specifically is La Bonne Table, which Matt's going to tell us about in a second, has a history that we can kind of circumvent the fact that it's out of print right now. But he is also the man who is so famous for the Madeline books for Bemelman's Bar, a couple blocks away from here at the Carlisle Hotel. So he was a painter and wonderful, prolific writer. What's interesting about La Bonne Table is that it's organized in sections. He actually did grow up in a family that did a lot of fine dining. And so the first section is experiences that he had at the table as a youngster. Then the middle section, if I've got this correct, is when he actually worked in hotels and restaurants. And then the later section is back to being a diner. He was he was very much a front of the house person. He 
loved people. He loved telling stories about them. He loved observing them in front of the house people. Get to see the best and the worst of human beings. I probably don't have to tell that to you guys. Um, but really great gift for short story bites. I know Tony Bourdain thought the world of Love on Top. Love on Top is an interesting book because at the time that Bemelmans died in the early 60s, none of his food writing was in print and book form. And a couple of friends of his collected what they thought were his best pieces and published them in La Bantab. Some of the books that they pulled from are actually now in print, even though La Bantab is not available from the publisher. Most notably, a book called Hotel Splendide, in which he talks about working in a grand hotel in New York. And he talks about starting as a busboy and being promoted to Kumi and then being promoted to a waiter and all the people who are in the hotel and in the dining room. And it's an amazing story and it's slightly fantastic around the edge, but there are like showgirls and foreign <laughs> diplomats. I mean, and it, it's a very New York, but it's also very sophisticated, very fun. It's, I kind of think that maybe there could be a Wes Anderson movie mm. made. Mm, I see that. Uh, out, of, out of Hotel Splendid. I think it would fit really well. And I actually think I read once that Anderson read Hotel Splendid before he made Grand Budapest Hotel. That makes sense. Um, but I think it's there's a lot of overlap there. Anyway, beautiful storyteller, keen observer of, of human nature, but also the nitty gritty of what happens in a dining room is all there too. Yeah, yeah. I love that stuff so much. And then the other book that I just want to highlight, unfortunately, is also out of print right now, but you can find it here and there. It's called The Auberge of the Flowering Hearth. It's by Roy Andres de Groot. This, too, was hand-recommended to me by Knock Waxman many, many years ago. It's set in the high alpine valley of La Grande Chartreuse. I've passed it on to a couple people and they love it. It's Yeah, it's the story of an inn run by two sisters who are sort of keeping the old ways alive. This is a book that appeared, I think, first in the early 1970s. And DeGroot was writing about experiences he had in the 60s and before. So again, a vanished world. DeGroot is a very sensory, sensual writer. He was, by the time he was writing this book, he was blind. And oh, wow. So he worked very hard to conjure a world that he was bringing out of his memory. When he tasted things, when he wrote about what he ate, he was bringing all his other senses to bear on that. So beautiful writing. And again, places like this don't really exist anymore, even in remote valleys in France. Although people, I think, would love to stumble across a place like that. But it really is magical. Well, when you read it, you feel like you have stumbled across it. And like you said, I think that this is something that books do for us is give us access to these other worlds. Okay, let's hear some of yours, Matt. Okay, well, one book that I think people may not know particularly well, but I know it was a book that Knock loved. And it's actually two books now published together as one. The Kitchen Book and the Cookbook by a man named Nicholas Freeling. Now, Nicholas Freeling, if you do a web search on him, was actually really well known as a mystery novelist. And he had wrote a number of very popular mystery series. They were bigger in Britain than they were here. But he had spent time as a young man working as a cook in some hotels in France and in England. And these are stories about being there. And in many ways... 
this is as if you took Tony Bourdain and put him 30 years earlier. He has that same sort of really crisp, powerful writing and a sense of like outrage at human stupidity at the same time that he really thinks that people should be treated well. I think that was very true of Tony is that he hated idiots because he thought good people should be treated well. And I think that comes up a lot in the Freeling as well. It's very sort of in the trenches, you're there. He doesn't spare anybody's feelings, but it's sort of rowdy and body and fun at the same time. This is a book that's currently in print. It should be pretty easy to find almost anywhere in the country. But you're only going to get it here. <laughs> well, we'd love it if you came to us for it, but we'd love it if you discovered it. That's the more important thing. So that's one of my favorites. To shift gears a little bit, to talk about some contemporary people, people who haven't read Gabrielle Hamilton's Blood, Bones, and Butter. This is really beautiful piece of writing. Really well put together account of how she eventually came to Open Prune, which was in its time one of the most popular restaurants in New York. Yes. Really circular path. Really circular path. She was a caterer. She wasn't a caterer. She worked in restaurants. She wasn't working in restaurants. She didn't just get up one day and say, I'm going to go to culinary school and then open a restaurant. Mm -hmm. And this is about all the adventures in her life. I think sometimes people feel like they have to be on a path that they can see deep, far into the future and know where they're going. And she didn't do that at all. And she still did something really remarkable. And I think it should be encouraging to people who are like thinking, maybe they're going to change gears in life. And holy cow, yeah, it can work out really well if you do that. 32 Yokes by Eric Repair. This is a really thoughtful, touching memoir by one of the great chefs working in this country. It makes a lot of references to working situations, particularly in France when he was a young man, that were abysmal. Really parts of the system that I think most people would be happy to say don't belong anywhere in the world right now. And it's how he got through that and how he found himself in a place where he could thrive and become something serious. So anybody who's having a rocky career spot, mm. this is this is about recentering yourself and discovering that you can move on and do that and become really amazing at what you do. Nice. Ed Lee, who has restaurants down in Louisville, Kentucky, but he's a Brooklyn boy by birth, has a book called Buttermilk Graffiti, which is about the things he did before he was really a serious cook. Or he was sort of farting around. He talks about working in an all-night diner in New York that was for six hours of the night. The prostitutes were his biggest customers. But he's also out there on the road, crossing the country, learning about American food. This is an uncommonly curious book for a lot of chefs. A lot of chef books are like, and then I did this, and then I did that, and then I did this. And, and it's like how I made my career. This is about how he educated himself and how he found out about a world beyond what he knew. And I think it's a book about being curious. And I think it really repays somebody who's restless in what they're doing and wondering whether the job that they're doing or the place that they're working, if the definition of life that they've been given is, is all that there is to it, uh, which I think can happen in the industry. Yeah, for sure. If you like a big sort of take no prisoners industry memoir, I can recommend Start the Fire by Jeremiah Tower, one of the most important figures in American cooking in the last 40 years. He's not a shy guy. He likes to stir things up and stir the pot. 
but he was in important places at important times and making important things happen. It's a, definitely a larger-than-life story about a guy who was shaped in the East and then he opened stars in San Francisco, which for many years mm-hmm. was a place where he brought up a lot of important people, trained yeah. with him and worked with him there. He encouraged important talent. And this is a long perspective on American, contemporary American culinary history. Um, if you don't want to know about the people who were out there getting all the publicity and you're more curious about sort of other aspects of American restaurant history, there's a book called Ingredients for Revolution. And this is the history of feminist restaurants in the United States, which for a time were incredibly important in a lot of towns and cities. They were places where women worked for women. They created spaces where women had a chance to rise in the kitchen and in the front of the house. Some of them were lesbian restaurants. Some of them were just restaurants for women. They were shifting the idea of what a local restaurant could be. And they really pulled some strings that are still being felt today. So ideas about how people should be compensated, Mm. how voices should be heard in the restaurants. These are elements that are still part of what's going on today. And honestly, the people who were interviewed for this book, some of them say, actually, the food wasn't really that good, but what we did was important. And so it's another look at the role that restaurants can play in a community, even if the food is ordinary, at the restaurant can be amazing, right. even if the food is. And finally, for people who are a bit more on the muckraker side of things, there's a recent book called Spoiled <laughs> by Ann Mendelson, which talks about a whole set of mistaken assumptions that have been made about milk and how important milk is. And if you grew up in the United States at a certain time, there were campaigns for milk everywhere. But the American government and the American milk industry tried to persuade everybody else in the world that they needed to consume milk like Americans did. Disaster. Terrible results in so many places. And Ann Mendelson, who is a really careful investigator, has looked at all this and how the mistakes were made and who was making them. At the same time, she really actually loves milk. She did this because she thinks milk is an amazing thing, but it just got misunderstood. A bit of a slightly different twist than some of the other books, but I think an important recent book that captures the ongoing investigation. Fantastic. Oh, I love it. I love it. Oh my gosh. Thank you for all of these wonderful recommendations, Matt. I bought a bunch of books before we started. Now I have to buy a few more before (laughs) I leave. I wanted to just finish up with a couple of questions for you. One is, of course, you have a big wall out there for wine, spirits, etc. Question I get a lot, and I have myself, is if somebody wants a good overview wine book, they only can buy one. I would say that somebody who's, particularly somebody who might be an industry person, yes. who needs... A front of the house, like say a server, or even a maitre d', they're never going to be a psalm, but they want to be educated. I would say Karen McNeil's The Wine Bible. Okay. Just came out in an updated third edition last year, and it has the breadth and the depth that, you know, you can give yourself a basic education, and then it's there for you to use as a reference if you have somebody who's asking you, like, really more particular questions and you need to be able to go deeper. It's, I know some restaurants use it for training programs. We had a woman working for us for a number of years who had run front of the house in several Michelin-starred restaurants, and she swore by that book, and she really taught me to value it. Fantastic. Okay, good. 
And the other thing is I had a book, like Dante, I had a front of the house service textbook from when I was in restaurant school. And I don't know if it was a Johnson & Wales or a CIA book or where it was from, but it disappeared out of the office of a not-to-be-mentioned restaurant that I was working in, 2000-ish. Do you have something here that is an old-school kind of textbook on dining room service? You know, that is an area where the books have largely disappeared. I think service has evolved and changed and the old school books that were say published in the 80s they're not in print anymore because nobody is really adhering to that level of sort of like almost european style white glove service and i think most restaurants are forging their own path on that and you know some restaurant out there says hey we've poured our lives into figuring this out and we want to publish our book kitchen arts and letters is going to support you we want to hear about it but i don't know what to recommend i I wish we had something great Yep. Okay. Well, it confirms it then. I think that what you said really makes sense. It's so true. I would love to just be able to refer to those things, even though you're right, we don't really use them anymore. But they're all, again, based in something originally. So that's interesting. Okay, cool. Then I guess one of my last questions is, as I'm having a real, you know, pinch me moment here, being up here and talking to you and being surrounded by all these books, I know you, of course, in the course of your daily work, meet all sorts of chefs and writers. Have you had any particular pinch me moments or people that you've worked with that you'd be willing to share with us? (laughs) Well, I mean, I have to say that we're really lucky to have good support from a lot of the New York chefs who come to us, they send their staff here. So whether it's Daniel Ballou or Eric Repair or Dan Barber or Angie Marr or Alex Guanaschelli, I mean, all these people are people who value books and they come in and sometimes it's a really specific purpose and Alex Guanaschelli comes in and sits down in a corner and she's there for three or four hours sort of she starts on one thing and she's ricocheting off other things and she's like hey do you have any books about this and that's fun for us you know we've been lucky over the years we years ago i think it may have been the first like week or two where i was on the job edna lewis came in oh wow and golly i mean I don't know if you ever met her, mm-hmm. but she had such a presence. I mean, and I wasn't even sure who she was at that point because I wasn't even 30 years old at that point. I didn't really know that much about the New York restaurant scene. I was like, whoever this woman is, the way she moves, the way she conducts herself, she had such presence. She's very quiet, didn't want any help. She was mm-hmm. happy to look on her own. We see people, I was here the day that this really energetic, guy came in sort of bouncing around and two sort of more slightly more serious guys were were with him and the bouncy guy said we heard about your story we wanted to come look and it was jose andres who had brought ferran adria and juan arzak into the store so the three of them here in the store for a couple of hours and jose was the the vibrant sort of exuberant all over the place guy that that you see him being everywhere. And Arzak was sort of sweet and grandfatherly, and Ferran was much more serious and looking around. So we're lucky to see people like that here. I can't guarantee that people are always going to find somebody like that when they come <laughs> in, but we want to be a nexus for people in the business in one way or the other. And it's a big part of why we're still open after all these years. Fantastic. 
Well, on that note, again, happy 40th anniversary. Thank you, thank you. And thank you so much for today. We don't video this, but I've had so many goosebumpy moments today. And thanks for welcoming me to this very special store. My pleasure, and thank you very much for having me. Okay, bye everybody. Maitre D Diaries is edited and produced by Erica Cantley. Conrad Lonsdale Knudsen is our assistant editor, and Chris Cantley is our designer and advisor. The theme music is by Yiriai Semshishin. Yeah.